mistake. I think you really want to talk to me. Sorry, I have three other interviews to do before this party's over. Yep, they're not working on something that'll change the world as we know it. They say they are. Yeah, but they're lying. I'm not. I call them telepods. Teleportation? It'll change the world as we know it, right? Can't deal with the flesh. It only seems to work with inanimate objects, nothing that's living. So I'm going to start teaching it now. Am I different somehow? Is it life or is it memory? The human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. Drink deep or taste not the plasma spring. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. I like it because it's kind of everything in one film. Is it a horror film? Yes, it absolutely is. Is it a science fiction film? Definitely. Is it a romance? Is it about relationships? Uh, yes. It just feels like this film is selling everything. Everything's laid out and it absolutely delivers. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your host, and that was Stephanie Crawford talking about David Cronenberg's classic 1986 horror film, The Fly. Ms. Crawford is a writer, editor, and podcaster whose work can be found at Screamcast, Splathouse, F This Movie, and Dread Central. Hey, Ms. Crawford, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. So, you chose The Fly, and it just so happens to be one of my very favorite movies, and one of the first movies that, uh, one, of, one of the first horror movies that I ever caught when I was a kid, and uh, I think I still have have those scars all these years later um can you tell me though out of any horror movie you might have chosen to talk about any at all why go with the fly yeah it it kind of seems like the fly unites everyone um there are people who might have like self-professed uh lower brow tastes in horror films and they all seem to love the fly you have people who might not be horror fans but they, there's a lot there for them to find. And they'll be like, well, you know, I don't like gore. I don't like death. But I do like the fly. I can't help it. I hear that a lot. Um, it, it seems to be a unifier. And I thought it would be a lot of fun to talk about because, like you, it is one of my favorites. Uh, and it hits me on so many levels. Um, but everyone I've ever met in my life who has seen it, the worst I think I've ever heard them say was like, it was kind of much, but it was interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. It does sort of, it's a horror movie for everybody. And, uh, you know, maybe it is sort of a mix of the highbrow and lowbrow, but I love that about it. And I honestly love horror movies that sort of aim somewhere in between art house and grindhouse. And I think The Fly definitely does that. Uh, I would never call it an art house film. I would never call it a grindhouse film. And yet, you know, I could see it playing comfortably in each. And uh, also it sits almost perfectly within Cronenberg's filmography too, as, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of the, uh, it's kind of his average in a way, you know, all of his concerns are on display in The Fly. And yet, 
you know, it, it kind of has the sheen of some of his later movies that he went on to make where he sort of left the genre behind. And yet it also feels of a piece with all of the uh, the more gruesome, gooey movies that he started out making in the 70s. And um, I just I can't even imagine what it was like for mainstream audiences, though, in the mid 80s to have watched that movie for the first time. And can you imagine seeing something like that for the first time in the time it was made and just wondering what the hell was on screen? No, I mean, I can't imagine. I'm sure it was overwhelming. I I did hear that it was definitely a reaction thing. And it's it's one of those films where you hear over the years like, oh, people were puking in the theater when they saw it. And this is one where I could actually believe it. I can attest to that. Uh, being, being entirely true. Uh, when the movie came out, I was five years old. And, you know, it hit theaters and eventually made its way to oh, VHS. And I think uh, HBO probably picked it up to play. And I, I remember one evening um, my parents decided to watch it. And, of course, me being five and then being responsible, uh, they, they elected to not have me anywhere near their room as they were watching this film. And uh, the thing is, though, is that I, I, I was always fascinated by the movies I couldn't watch as a kid, uh, especially the stuff that, you know, one could almost deem as being kid-friendly in a way. I mean, how the hell is RoboCop a rated R movie? That pisses me off 30 years <laughs> later. I mean, come on. Uh, but still, you know, I, I, I remember hearing all of the sounds later on in the film of, uh, you know, uh, Brundlefly on, on the attack or, you know, like uh, the, the, the wrist being broken, all of these horrific things in my room as I'm trying to play with toys or something. And I'm like, oh. what? You know, I, I, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I, I got to imagine the thoughts going through my head didn't sound too different from what the hell are they watching? And uh, and then at one point, the, the sounds of uh, violence or people being ill got really, really... 3D and uh, close in a way that the volume on the television uh, never really does. And I realized that it was no longer the film. My mother actually got violently ill watching the film. It actually made her sick. The only time in her life, apparently, that she that a movie made her throw up. And it was that one. And she's probably, if she's going to listen to this podcast, and we're like, she's probably not going to appreciate my telling that story. But nevertheless, it happened. So, yeah, so far as the, 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 the movie making people puke, it's I can, I can swear that it made at least one person uh, vomit. So, yeah, and honestly, it... <laughs> I, I, I always talk on this podcast about uh, the first horror movies that I saw. And I always mention like Nightbreed because that was the first one that I watched that made me really sort of like interested in the genre. And uh, seeing Halloween 5 for the first time on VHS when I thought nobody was watching. My brother tormenting me with uh, Friday the 13th sequels uh, when I was a kid, you know, making me watch bits and pieces of them. But I, probably in all honesty, the first horror movie that I watched beginning to end was The Fly. Uh, a friend of mine, I spent the night at his house, and he was like, have you ever seen The Fly? Cut to my memory of my mother getting ill, and I was just like, yeah, yeah. You want to watch it? Sure. Yeah, I guess. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, it it's a disgusting movie, but it's a fascinating movie. Even at that age, I... I, I loved it. I love every bit of it. I love it to this day. And I don't know. What was your first experience watching it? Oh, I wish I didn't follow that because that is an amazing story. And if your mom is listening, please don't be angry at him because that is great. And I, I feel like every filmmaker should kind of aim for a reaction in that wheelhouse kind of. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Um, unfortunately, yeah, I don't have a fun story. Um, I was in my late teens and I was really into horror and the fly is, you know, one of those films you hear about all the time. You have to see the fly. The fly is so great. Um, and I put it on and I was like, oh yeah, this might be my new favorite movie. (laughs) And that opinion changed over the years. Uh, not my regard for it. Uh, but wow. Um, even as it, I, I feel like I was too young to see it when I was like 19. So, uh, I'm impressed <laughs> with your early experience. No, I, I feel like I'm too young to see it at 37. Um, I, uh, it, it's a movie that maybe it's not safe for life. Um, I don't know. It, and yet it, God, I, you know, you mentioned before that it's a horror film, uh, that it's a sci-fi film, but I think the thing that really anchors the movie and makes all of the really terrible stuff palatable in a way is the fact that at its heart, it really is a romance. It is a great love story. A thousand percent. It's actually one of my favorite love stories on film. Same here. I don't know that I've seen another love story committed the film that affects me as deeply as this one. That's as tragic. I, I will take the fly over the notebook any day of the week. Um, and I, I love the notebook. I admit that freely, <clears throat> but, um, <laughs> but no, I, I, I think it is a great love story. And it also, I think that's, what's so great about the fly is that in addition to dealing with the various themes that Cronenberg has throughout the uh, course of his career, you can really point to that movie and say, or argue rather the point that some people seem to have with his work, which is that it's a bit cold and clinical. And I, I've never seen that personally. I guess I understand it with some of his earlier movies. Uh, you, you can watch rabid and sort of be, you know, there, there isn't much of a beating heart there. I don't suppose, or even, um, uh, shivers, but you know, once you start getting to his stuff in the eighties, like, um, you know, even I, I'm not the biggest fan of it, but Scanners uh, and definitely The Dead Zone and The Fly. I think he's a guy who is interested in every aspect of the human condition, even though he only deals with body horror. But there, there, I think there is a warmth in his movies, even when they're at their coldest. And I don't know. Am I completely silly for droning on and on about that? Well, if you are, I am as well. I completely agree with you. I've never fully understand the cold read on him i i i guess it might be because he takes a different tack to a lot of it um it it's not like a traditional here's a warm scene of these people at home he kind of kind of dives into their bloodstream and is like okay let's look at what's really going on here like let's start from the inside and go outward i and and it's really apparent in the fly but I, I think he is incredibly fixated, not just on body horror, but on the relationship between like the psyche and emotions to the body um, in a lot of different ways. And one of the reasons why I love this as a love story so much is I think it's one of the few films that accurately shows what being in love with someone who has a chronic illness is like or possibly a drug addiction and we we don't normally see that at least not as like the main plot but there's so much of this film 
that it just really showcases um, in an expedited way what it's like being in love with someone who is healthy and vibrant and suddenly that's different. Their cells go insane and they're ill and you still love them, but everything's changed. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, God, it makes it such a tragic story too. I mean, by the time we get to the end of it and we see that, you know, I, we're so used to movies that deal with romance in this way. Uh, not specifically this way, not in horror sci-fi ways, but I mean, you know, looking at, uh, you know, the meet cute between boy and girl, you know, and uh, eventually they're split apart. And then at the end, I mean, if this had been a typical romance, uh, Ronnie would have been boarding a plane and Seth would have been racing after her to stop her before she leaves. Um, <laughs> and instead, you know, that's just not in the cards for these characters. But, you know, I, I remember reading, I think it was in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, like... Uh, Apparently, it being the mid-80s, there was sort of a read on the movie that it was meant to be some sort of allegory for uh, AIDS. And I remember Cronenberg sort of balking at that a bit uh, and not wanting to say that it was really exactly just one thing. You know, it's not necessarily an, uh, you know AIDS. It's not necessarily cancer. You know, uh, it's not necessarily just old age, you know, uh, but maybe it's sort of any number of things that can pull a relationship apart due to, you know, one partner's physicality and um, right. yeah. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. No, it, I, I can't watch the film and not have that in mind. And I mean, okay. All of it is just based on my own life experience. Um, but it, it adds so much rich, richness to the film. And I picked that up the first time I saw it, but I also think if that doesn't exist to a person, it's still, a great film with so much depth to it. But I feel like uh, viewers who have experience on some way in, in their life will see at least a little bit of that. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, we give credit to Cronenberg and it's certainly due there too. But so far as it being a great romance too, uh, I think a bit of credit goes to uh, the original writer on the project, uh, Charles Edward Pogue, who, you know, it's worth noting that he also wrote Psycho 3, which to this fan is also another great horror romance. And have you seen Psycho 3? I have, yes. Yeah, it's I, but that's another great romance that turns into a, a, a quite doomed one, as it were. But, uh, you know, Pogue has always noted, or rather Cronenberg has always noted that his version of The Fly wouldn't exist without Pogue's original screenplay. And Pogue is, uh, you know, I met him at a convention once. He was a super nice guy, but he noted that, you know, obviously Cronenberg took great liberties with his script and turned it into a great movie. But, you know, the the notion that there is a, a romance at the heart of the film, I mean, that comes from him quite a bit too. But I, I'm just glad that Cronenberg, in taking that script, didn't write that out. Uh, and, in fact, probably turned it into something, you know, even more powerful than it might have been on the page initially. Yeah, um the I'm I'm mostly familiar with his work on The Fly and Psycho 3. I haven't even seen Dragonheart, <laughs> but uh, he is wonderful at bringing emotion into places where you might not expect it. And it, I would like to see more scripts from him. I would too. I would too, especially now. Like it's now that his work has sort of been mined in various ways. Like, um, oh God, I mean, you mentioned Dragonheart. I didn't realize that he wrote that, but <laughs> I think there have been like three or four sequels to it at this point. You know, the. The notion of Norman Bates as kind of a romantic character has been, uh, 
has been addressed in Bates Motel recently. Um, you know, it's just strange that we haven't had, and maybe it's a good thing that we uh, haven't returned to the Fly since. Uh, was it The Fly 2, also in the 80s? It came out just a couple of years after this. Even though uh, apparently Cronenberg wanted to do a sequel of some sort a couple of years back, and Fox, for whatever reason, decided uh, not to do it. But I don't know. I Have you seen The Fly 2? What was, what was your feeling about that follow-up? I have seen The Fly 2. Um, I kind of feel bad for The Fly 2 because <laughs> if... <laughs> If you kind of watch it on its own merits, it's just, it's like a neat little 80s monster film. And Eric Stoltz and Daphne Zuniga, I like their chemistry together. Uh, it's really fun. I think Chris Wallace, who did the majority of the effects on the fly, did a great job directing it. Um, but you're comparing it to basically a masterpiece. Yeah. And it was rushed and... Um, it's just not one of those films where it comes up. They're like, hey, everybody, let's celebrate the anniversary of The Fly 2. Oh, you give it time. That's going to wind up being a Vestron yeah, release or an Actually, Arrow release. Like somebody is going to. Uh, some, I, I mean, if Creepshow 2 can get reappraised, then by God, <laughs> The Fly 2 deserves it, too. Um, yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think it, it's I think on its own merits, it's actually a really strong like creature feature. Um but it's, you know, it, it's a tough act to fall. I think The Fly 2 would benefit from a viewing on its own. Like, it, it's never going to work very well if you double feature the Cronenberg yeah. film and it. But, you know, if you give it time and uh, sort of keep the Cronenberg movie in the back of your mind while you're watching The you know the Fly 2, I, I think it's really cool. Um, and it, the creature effects are amazing. I, I The score, of course, is still great. The performances, it has a real energy to it. Um, I love seeing Stathis Borens again. I love that actor. Oh, I love yeah. that character. <laughs> And yeah, did you know that uh, I think it was around four or five years ago, uh, IDW actually did a comic book sequel to The Fly 2. I think it was called something like uh, The Fly Outbreak. Uh, did you ever get a chance to check that out? Not The Fly 2-2? Uh, no, Should've I didn't. <laughs> Isn't it? How was it? Um, it, uh, it really, it sure was pretty. Uh, the artist they got for it was great. And I, I suppose the... Uh, the basic idea behind the um, the idea from that story was actually kind of cool. The, the notion of uh, flyness and that mutation being something that could catch, like, you know, a disease in a way, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, Eric Stoltz's character and Daphne Zuniga's characters are the leads in it again. So it's a direct follow-up. And what's weird, though, again, it came out four or five years ago, you had a sequel to a movie that took place in the 80s. The leads are acting as though the events of the second film are not that far in their history. They're both still relatively young, and yet they're using iPhones, and it's all very contemporary. They pull a sort of Texas Chainsaw 3D kind of math with this being a follow-up, but uh, but the artwork is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it's worth picking up for that alone. Um, other than that, I mean, there, there hasn't been much in the way of a uh, uh, follow-up to The Fly, other than... Uh, Cronenberg's own opera, which, um, God, I don't know. I'd never caught it, and I'm, I'm a huge Cronenberg fan. I, I I hate myself for not traveling to see it, but um, I wish they'd filmed it. 
I wish there would be some way to watch it now, but I don't know. Do you do you see any merit? Do you think in potentially remaking The Fly again, or what would you like to see from a uh, from a follow up or sequel or remake at this point? It is funny that this this is a remake, isn't it? Um, I think it's one of those few remakes that people don't really, even if they know it's a remake, they don't view it as a remake. Um, And I used to be one of those people like, oh, remakes, forget about it. And I would just write it (laughs) off. (laughs) Thankfully, I'm a little less jerky these days about it. Um, It definitely does stand as like one of those immediate examples that you can give right alongside a... Carpenter's the thing that remakes of older horror movies can actually be great. It's just there are so few of them. I mean, usually when uh, when you have to offer up examples, it's it, it just comes down to those two. It comes. Yeah, I hate remakes. You know, except for the fly and the thing, but they don't count. They're so different. Yeah. There's no carrot monster in Carpenter's the thing. Okay, <laughs> there should have been. No, there should have been. And no one's saying help me. And Cronenberg's the fly. No, there should have been for that one. Okay, fair enough. Fair um, enough. <laughs> I am imagining Jeff Goldblum saying it, and I kind of want to see it. I don't want it to be in the movie, but that could have been a great outtake. Damn. <laughs> what could have been? Oh. Well. <laughs> yeah, I guess on one hand, I could say, well, it was just so brilliant, and it's a little timeless, so I don't think it's really coming to mind. But I would have said that about Suspiria, too. Oh, my God. And- yeah, who would have thought? Yeah, so... Um, I've been waiting on... Uh, no, I have, I'm sorry. I have not been waiting on that remake. I've been hearing about that remake since I was a teenager. They've been talking about it since uh, the late 90s. Uh, if it dates the idea of this being a remake, uh, I'll tell you, I remember reading on one of those movie websites, I think it was Coming Attractions or Dark Horizons or something like that, that apparently around 99... No, it would have been around 2000, 2001, uh, they were looking at like Heather Donahue from the Blair Witch Project, uh, playing Susie Banyan. And I was just like... Let's timestamp that right now. Exactly, yeah. Like, And so it's just always kind of... And then, you know, uh, eventually there were rumors that it was going to be Natalie Portman. And uh, I, I wonder if that's where Black Swan came from. Um, you know, I to an extent. Uh, and now, you know, now we're getting it. And after all these years of hating the idea of somebody revisiting that movie and trying to remake, you know, a masterpiece... It actually looks really good, and I'm kind of excited it to does. see it. And everybody's <laughs> excited for it. And it, it, the temperature changed very quickly. I think once, uh, once that trailer came out, everyone went from like, ah, it's probably going to be terrible. They got an interesting director, but why remake that movie? Come on, can't you come up with any original ideas? Trailer hits, and it's like everybody is in that movie's corner <laughs> now. We're all going to be there opening night. Yeah, and I think that might be the case if they do remake The Fly, maybe jumping off Cronenberg's vision of it, because whether however you feel about him, Dario Argento has a point of view. Oh, yeah. And he has a very striking visual style, um, very deliberate pacing. So Suspiria really stands out as a unique film, whether you like it or not. Um, it, it's a very distinct film. I, I love it personally, but, and I, I think people are just kind of worried that they kind of just like ape the set pieces. Instead, we're getting a filmmaker who also has a very strong point of view. They have their own visual style. And I, I think a lot of people weren't, uh, expecting that we were expecting the worst. And so like, Oh, a 
different point of view on the story. <laughs> okay. And if they if they do kind of mind the fly, I think that's exactly what they need. We need, I mean, Cronenberg, it's Cronenberg. But you would need an incredibly strong, not just talent-wise, when it comes to screenwriting and filmmaking, but just a very distinctive style. I could see that. Yeah, I just... I, I I wonder what that would look like, and I wonder if they would take into account like the original movie with uh, Vincent Price or the short story that it's all mm-hmm. based on. Would they try and like? Would there be an expectation from the studio to sort of, you know, just point to Cronenberg's movie and say, "Do that again with new actors"? Um, I hope not. I hope not. Um, but I don't know. I'm I'm kind of afraid. Of, you know, I mean, if Cronenberg himself can write a script for a follow-up and they don't go with it. Like I, I, what do you want at that point? Like I, I'm sorry. I'm still bummed out about that all these years later after they, they, they trashed his sequel, which apparently wasn't going to be a sequel. It was going to be like a lateral, like a companion film, I guess. Was it still going to be Brundle? No, 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 no shared characters set in the same world. Um, from the reading I was doing on it, apparently he wrote a script and everything, and it was a matter of the movie was meant to deal with, like, I guess, flyness and teleportation, and other than that, it wasn't going to have any sort of connection to the previous movie. It was going to be a companion piece more than a direct sequel, and I would have watched that. You know, I, I'll watch anything that Cronenberg does, So, uh, but I, I just don't understand why they couldn't see the appeal of a fly follow-up from the guy who gave us the original one and what that would mean. But uh, according to him in an interview, he said that uh, his ideas were too out there and apparently they wanted to do it kind of low budget, but the ideas that he had that originally attracted them to the idea would command a larger budget. So I don't know. I, I They shelved it and it's likely that we'll never get it. So, And that yeah, wasn't even going to be... Broken. It is! It is. When Cronenberg can't do a Fly sequel, then we, we've gotten it all terribly wrong. Um, but yeah, there was going to be, I guess, I was doing a bit of research, a sequel back in the 80s directly after the first one, which would have involved... Ronnie and uh, Seth again to a degree and uh, Magina Davis wanted to do a sequel with her then husband Rennie Harlan uh, which is going to be called Flies uh, which I don't know if that would look like the aliens version of Fly- the fly who knows but uh, I, I obviously can't comment on if that would be good or bad but I do know I would like to see that I imagine her like Ripley just walking around a jungle like blasting uh, massive mutant flies. I'm the queen of the flies now. Oh, why couldn't that have happened? <laughs> they would I, I would still watch that movie, by God. Um, no, but I I don't know. I just don't know. You know, would we even get a remake today, or do you think we would get like a Halloween twenty eighteen you know, sequel that forgets the fly too and connects directly to the first one. And you know what? If Cronenberg would do it, I suppose I would be there for that too. You so you would be there. Come on. Um, I I do absolutely think it the, the fly too would get disregarded. And again, we we both see a lot in that movie, but that uh, yeah, that <laughs> just feels like the kind of sequel that wouldn't be included. I don't know. What do you think if, like, Guillermo del Toro was interested? Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll be there for that. Yeah, I, oh, my God. But what would that... 
I, I wonder what concerns he would find, like what themes he would wrestle with with that story, you know? I almost feel like, because um, in the film, his living space becomes like decayed. But I wonder if uh, Del Toro did it, if it would become kind of like an artistic kind of place. I don't know where flies live. I, I feel like they fly everywhere. I, too bad it's not bees, because then he could do like a really cool, like honeycomb beehive motif. But maybe something like that, like more about how it affects his environment. Huh. I like that. I think that could be very cool. I, uh, uh, and you know, it would be absolutely gorgeous. Um, if only Cronenberg's movie had wound up ending with that deleted scene where there's this weird sort of butterfly baby <laughs> thing. <laughs> the because, stop motion baby butterfly. Yes, Del Toro could uh, direct the hell out of a butterfly baby movie. Like, uh, Brundle Kid would wind up befriending a little girl, probably. Uh, it'd be very sort of into that magical realism that he does, and he'd probably win an Oscar for it. We gotta pitch this. Can you get him on the show? I can. Look into it. Please do. <laughs> I need this now. I will, I will somehow get him onto the show, and then at the very end of it, be like, before you go, got an idea to run by you. <laughs> so if you were to do a fly sequel with the butterfly baby, click hello? Hello? <laughs> Mr. Del Toro? <laughs> uh, no, I he wouldn't hang up straight away. He would swear at me uh, for like two minutes straight, turn the air blue, and then he would hang up on me. Oh, come on. He'd probably laugh and then hang up on you. <laughs> I've been in that man's presence before. I went to a convention once. He, His 30-minute presentation on what Hellboy was going to be at a Fangoria convention, he – I have never – there. he can pack more profanity into a minute's <laughs> worth of conversation than all of, say, uh, Scarface in its two-and-a-half-hour-long running time. Like, he, it's astonishing. He uses profanity – like an artist. Um, it's it's amazing. He was also super nice. But again, he just swears like a madman. Um, my God, how did we get here? I apologize. Um, <laughs> anyway, back to the fly. Um, you know, but yeah, I I don't know. And maybe we don't even need a follow-up to the fly. Maybe it doesn't need to be revisited. It's kind of perfect on its own. But can I ask, so far as its place in Cronenberg's filmography, where does it rank for you? Is it your favorite, or do you have another favorite Cronenberg, perhaps? Uh, and what do you think about his work as a whole? Uh, I'll have to be a little basic here and say it is my favorite. It's right. the one I've seen the most by far. Uh, yeah, it, it is my favorite Cronenberg. I am a huge Cronenberg fan. I absolutely love him. And I do not find him cold. I'm a little, I'm I'm obsessed with how unique his point of view is. Actually, uh, I the more filmmakers we have that are, they just kind of shrug and they're like, "No, this is my point of view. I want like a living organism video game controller. I'm I'm just gonna do it." <laughs> uh, we need more brains like that out there. Um, so yes, The Fly is my favorite. Um, I will say Videodrome. Is probably a close second, and I don't know. Depending on my mood, uh, Rabid, The Brood, and Dead Ringers kind of fight there. I, I'm actually late to seeing Naked Lunch. I, I saw that recently, and that blew my mind. Oh, but it was yeah. so recent, I can't really, like, rank. I'm not a big ranker person anyway, but... Um, and I, I, 
I think his more recent career is interesting. Uh, a History of Violence and Eastern Promises I liked a lot. But I that era between, I would say, probably Rabid and Naked Lunch is my favorite. Same here. Yeah, I, you watch a movie like Naked Lunch, and you're just like, how the hell did this get made? Like, <laughs> yeah. who who gave him the money to do that, thinking, yeah, this is going to be a hit. This is for me. And thank God they didn't, you know. Uh, and thank God the movie got made. But it's just, uh, you watch it, and you go a little mad, I think, right alongside him as you're watching the film. Um, yeah, I I adore Cronenberg. I, he was one of the first filmmakers that I sort of... Uh, attached to when I was a kid and like really sort of studied his work. Um, I think the first book on film I bought was Cronenberg on Cronenberg and just reading a filmmaker's, you know, thoughts on his own work and then going and renting the movies on VHS at the time. Uh, But, um, you know, going through his whole filmography, I was just amazed that he could tell so many different types of stories and yet they're all distinctly him. And, um, you know, it's really amazing. And it's something that I feel like in the last few years uh, he might have lost a little bit. Um, I, I love A History of Violence. I think that's absolutely a Cronenberg film, even though it's not, you know, a gory, gooey sci-fi horror flick. I, I think Eastern Promises is brilliant. Um, but sort of like Cosmopolis on, um, he's lost me a little bit. You know, I, I can't quite go with him now where wherever he's headed um i'm still there for every one of his movies but it's uh it's strange the the route that his career has taken him and um but yeah i mean the fly definitely sits high up there for me videodrome is right up there um i love the brood i think the brood is a deeply underrated movie even though i mean i don't know how how underrated a movie can be when Criterion releases on Blu-ray. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. But at the same time, it's still, even for that, it feels a little a little underloved for how great it is. And maybe that's just because it's, I don't know, to some people maybe it's lost in a sea of other gems. But um, I don't know. Can I can I be honest for a second, though? Uh, as much as I love, like, his early work, I I, I think Shivers is great. Um, I Like I said, I love The Brood. Um I, I love all of his early stuff. I love that 80s and 90s era that he did, uh, all the way up until Existence, my God. But um, I'm not the biggest fan of Scanners, and I'm not the biggest fan at all. Please don't hate me because you just mentioned it was one of your favorites. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of Rabid. Okay. No, you can judge me. Go ahead. No, it's fine. Throw well, Rabid, Rabid, I love Uh I'd be kind of interested in hearing about why you don't like Rabbit, but I'm with you on Scanners. Um, it's, you know, it's clearly not a terrible movie or anything, but um, I, I kind of wondered about because, of course, like, you see specific scenes from it, and it's hyped for so long. I was like, man, I'm finally ready to see Scanners. And it, it, I don't know. It left me a little flat. Yeah. It didn't connect with me the same way a lot of his other films do and it's such a great concept and it feels like when when you watch it it's absolutely Cronenberg of that era you know but um and it has a great opening like it has a jaw-dropping opening but it's just the I don't care about any of the characters you know I mentioned 
that I don't think that his work is cold in the way that that's uh, uh, that's usually said about his work. You know, uh, that it's sometimes cold and clinical. But in the case of Scanners, I, I think there is a real attempt at uh, creating warmth there and creating characters that are meant to garner our sympathies. But it just, to me, it falls flat. And it, yeah, it doesn't work. And I, that's strangely, like I... I know apparently he hates the idea of anyone following up his movies or especially remaking his films. Hell, he was pissed at, uh, oh, the guy who made The Crash of, was it 2005, 2006? Uh, completely different movie from his just ballad adaptation. Title. But just because well, there was see another... the crash, you wouldn't be happy either. <laughs> yeah, like he, apparently he was pissed at that. And to be fair, I think they used the same damn font. Um Crash. I, seriously, everyone out there, compare the font of Cronenberg's Crash to the Crash, the Academy Award winner from like 2005. I'm pretty sure it's the same. Maybe they were trying to troll him. I don't know. But um, but in the case of Rabid and Scanners, like I'm kind of cool with the idea that somebody might remake those someday. Like uh, I don't want anybody remaking Videodrome. Um, you know, nobody should remake The Brood. I, I think filmography should mostly just be. Left alone. Obviously, it's cool if somebody remakes The Fly because his, in fact, was a remake. But, um, you know, I'm kind of interested in seeing what the Saska sisters do with uh, Rabid. And I would be cool with somebody revisiting Scanners someday because uh, as cool as the idea is, none of those movies have gotten it right. They had five movies to make a decent flick out of uh, out of that concept. And it uh, it hasn't happened yet. All right, kids. <laughs> yeah, the, the one thing, the thing I liked most about Scanners was kind of the cult-like aspect, and that's because it reminded me of The Brood. So that's <laughs> that's the most I got out of it, I think. Yeah, Besides Exploding sure. Heads, that was fun. But. Exploding Heads are always fun. And, uh, you know, Michael Ironside, he was a great villain. I, I, oh, yeah, I gotta love him. And the, the ending, the idea of, uh, you know, I mean, I wonder how much of that sort of fed into the, the fusion subplot in uh, The Fly. But the, the idea oh. that at the end there are two men who are now sharing, like, one body. You know, the, the hero is now stuck in the villain's body, but the villain is still a presence. Uh, I remember reading about it, too, that when they shot that scene, obviously they... Apparently they changed Ironside's hair a little bit and then they messed with his voice so that it was somewhere between his own voice and then the voice of the heroes. So there was this idea that yeah. they were now one person. And then you get to the end of The Fly and the idea that Brundle wants to, you know, at first we think that he's going to like just purify himself. But then he gets the idea that he wants to create like one perfect creature you know out of himself his child and ronnie and that's just a deeply disturbing idea like that is that is the insect in brundle at that point i think doing his thinking for him but oh yeah that's that's him creating insect politics right there <laughs> god that and you mentioned that the dialogue in the movie is incredible like some of the lines that he has the right down to that moment the fact that insects don't have politics but uh you know, uh, oh my God, what is the line? It's one of my. Favorite. I want to be the first insect politician. <laughs> <laughs> There's the sequel. Uh, it could be timely. Um, I, I think they should go that route. But, but even... he did the Dead Zone. I mean, 
True, true. <laughs> you know, how far-fetched was that, having a president who's a, a, a self-obsessed madman who has a finger hovering above the, uh, the big okay, red let's, button. Okay, let's not time. start crying. We don't need <laughs> No, I, uh, but even, you know, I think it's in that same speech, that same moment with Ronnie where he says, uh, I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And... I, I love that his point of view has shifted so much and we're being told essentially that his humanity at this point is entirely forfeit. And uh, I, that's what, to me, I, that's almost the second tragedy in the movie. Not only the romance being destroyed by the end of it, you know, this relationship being torn apart, but the idea that the man's humanity is stripped from him uh, bit by bit throughout the course of the movie too is not only terrifying, but just really, really sad. And... I don't know. I, I think Cronenberg's handling of that aspect of the movie is marvelous. Absolutely. There, of course, there's the scenes where like his ear is coming off. Um, but it, I, I think they, Jeff Goldblum was such a wonderful choice for this because you you completely buy him as this like energetic, idealistic scientist and. Uh, then almost like a junkie with how uh, the transformation made him feel. And then as someone who, of course, is heartbroken and scared by his body decaying and changing, but also is still observing it and is still fascinated by it and still has the presence of mind to kind of analyze it and be able to explain it to someone. And it it's, it's so naturalistic how... And it shouldn't be. It's a man turning into, like, a crazy fly creature. <laughs> but it feels so real. And it just adds to how heartbreaking it is. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's interesting that you touched on that. I love that, that Brundle sort of remains a scientist. He He remains somebody who wants to observe all these strange, crazy things that are happening to him, you know, for as long as he possibly can. The, the fact that he creates a museum to himself, you <laughs> know, with all of this. I mean, there's something perversely funny about that, and it's also sad. But more than anything, it seems just really true to who that guy was as a character. Like, uh, of course he did. Of course that guy, you know, would collect that stuff. I just, I, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, I, and plus you mentioned Goldblum too. I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. Who, what no. actor in the mid '80s could possibly have, possibly have tackled that role and done it justice? You know, who who could have bested Goldblum in that role? I don't think there's anybody. No, you could of course find competent actors to do an okay job. But nothing like him. And in the documentary, they mentioned like, well, he, he's terrible from a special effects aspect because he has a very animated small face. But he's pretty much the only guy who could have done it. And he was with Gina Davis at the time. And he's like, yeah, just audition her. And they're like, oh, he's got to bring the girlfriend. And of course, she was perfect and amazing. So it's not only that he was perfect, but because of that relationship, he brought in the absolute perfect person into the film. So, no, th this was meant to be. This is one of those films where where there was – it was an easy filmmaking thing. There's tragedy going on, the making of it. But, 
this film was meant to come together the way it did with the people it came together with. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that affects the remake or the reimagining thing. Like, it's just such a strange concept. You really kind of need a, a perfect alchemy for it. Yeah, I agree. And I just, I, you know, I, I can't even see what that would be in my mind, like somebody trying to to remake it again now that now that we have this movie and it's so very perfect. But, you know, I mean, inevitably it'll happen at some point. Uh, I think I had read somewhere that the guy who made the movie Slight, I think, a year or two ago, was possibly doing a remake. So it'll be curious to see which... Uh, which route he takes when trying to retell that story. But but I think you're right. I mean, everything everything was perfect with this. I mean, the fact that it was Goldblum and the fact that it was Gina Davis. And even, you know, I'm going to go ahead and say it again. John Getz is Stathis Borns. He's one of the great sleazeballs in cinema. Who, one of the greatest sleazeballs who winds up being a pretty decent guy. By the end. Yes. <laughs> well, I love that he came into audition with a headache. And they're like, that's great. Can you just do the role like you always have that headache? <laughs> And it's totally headache acting. It's perfect. <laughs> I've never heard of this headache acting, but if that's what he needed to do, then by God, like he knocked it out of the park. I, I want a Stathis Boren spinoff movie. There's the sequel. Just there you go. Catch me up with that guy all these years later. <laughs> you, Del Toro, Stathis. I love it. So what do you have to say about the fact that this movie, which is a great romance and it's horrifying and it's this brilliant piece of sci-fi, the fact that it was produced by, of all people, Mel Brooks. I'm just glad he's such a big booster of Canadians. Uh, <laughs> I think that's great for our country. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, he, he uh, was a producer on The Elephant Man, too. Yeah, between those two, I mean, there's the feeling that Brooks, <laughs> as a producer, wanted to he wanted to make some heavy movies. Like, he... he he God, there's a darkness in that guy, I think, if he's actually looking towards making films like that. Oh, yeah. There, show me a comedian who doesn't have a dark side, and I'll show you someone who's not particularly funny. So, yeah, no, it, that's like a really fun factoid, but, you know, I, I, I feel like that's probably one of the perks of being a producer is that you can work on other projects that you yourself wouldn't direct. Can we imagine just for a moment what a Mel Brooks directed fly remake would look like? Especially on Broadway, the musical. <laughs> Give him the opera that Cronenberg did to remake and put on screen. I would watch the hell out of that. There's so many projects that are probably a terrible idea that I want to see so badly. And this is now one of them. <laughs> <sighs> There should be a list. I always wanted to write a series of articles or do something where, uh, you know, reviews of movies that don't actually exist but should, you know, whether they actually were rumored or, um, you know, whether they were going to happen and never did. You know, I, I want to write a four-star review of Guillermo del Toro's At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> I, I now want to write a two-star review of Mel Brooks's The Fly. Oh, come on. I'm sorry. There's what? some good songs in there. There are some strong tunes. I, I get the feeling <laughs> Mel Brooks's The Fly would likely be more Dracula dead and loving it than it would be young Frankenstein. When uh, Dario Argento's Dracula movie oh, came out, 
<laughs> I I couldn't help just calling it Dracula on ice. Dario Gento's Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> Which I would also pay good money to see. Can we talk about this? Just the fact that Dracula turned into a praying mantis in that movie. Was it a praying mantis or a mosquito or what the hell was it? But it just. Maybe he should do the new The Fly. <laughs> no. No, love of God, no. I love Dario, but maybe it's time for him to retire. Um, I don't, you know, and talking about Argento for just a second. I, I love Argento. I do. But. He okay. I'm, I'm. I'll try and make this idea work here. Tarantino, I think, once maybe ten or fifteen years ago, said that he wanted to only do a, a certain number of movies, or he only wanted to work until a certain age because he didn't want to wind up like some of his heroes who yeah. Kept I think working. he said sixty. Yeah, yeah, and not continue working on into. Uh, older age where, you know, his faculty start to leave him and his abilities as a filmmaker and storyteller start to uh, disintegrate. And uh, I don't think he outright said the names of any filmmakers he would actually level that at. But I mean, you know, I uh, Hitchcock, you know, maybe the last five years or so of his career maybe weren't as strong as everything that came before. And I think in this case, Argento, um, is maybe, you know, I think the Stendhal Syndrome is maybe the last great movie he made, you know, in 96. And even I think there are people who would argue with me on that, that the Stendhal Syndrome maybe isn't even that great. They're wrong. But, right. Uh, a, lot a, of, a lot of people say opera. Some uh, people really? won't even give them opera, which really angers me. Really? Opera's great. It is great. Um, but, like, do you feel that that might be the case with Cronenberg? Uh, you know, we were talking about his filmography and you know, he did a history of violence. He did Eastern promises. And I think both of those are great, but then he did a dangerous method, which is, you know, I, I, I look at that movie and it, it's a good film and I, I can see what the appeal of telling that story was to him. And yet at the same time, it, it didn't strike me as particularly Cronenbergian, you know, and then he did Cosmopolis and then maps of the stars. His last film is now four years old. So, I don't know, dare we fear that that's perhaps the case with Cronenberg, or is there the hope that he might still give us some amazing stuff before he decides to retire, if he ever does? I mean, he's, I think, 74 or 75 now, something like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I come up with theories about that sometimes, and then a filmmaker will inevitably do something, they'll ruin that theory. And, of course, they're all different human beings with different lives, so there's not just one thing that'll work for all of them but you know for some filmmakers when they start out they're young and hungry and they're passionate and then you know they get older they're comfortable financially uh you know they they don't really have a lot of things to fight against anymore everything's kind of pleasant and for a lot of people that's kind of an idea killer um, so I, I think that can kind of peter out a lot of careers. Um, yeah, it, it's rough. I, on one hand there, like John Waters, uh, I, I want him to continue making films. Um, but at the same time, it's just, you know, he's like a well-dressed man doing like incredible lectures now. And I, I just, 
you know, he's not like a dirty punk in Baltimore anymore. And <laughs> I can't expect him to just like go back and revisit that. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, there's a lot to it. Uh, and I, I hate to say, well, they're older. So it's not going to be as good because there are a lot of filmmakers who were strong the entire time. Um, even when it slowed down, like for Fellini, his later movies obviously weren't strong, but I thought they were still very interesting. Robert um, Altman being another. I mean, yes, yes. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, I don't know. With Cronenberg, I don't think it's because he's wealthy and bored because he's Canadian. And I think that shields him from that. Like he's not that <laughs> vulgar because there are more pure people. So, yeah. I ew, I don't know. Yeah, because he has such a singular, unusual vision, and yet he it, it shifted so much over the years. Because I, I, yeah, if you compare The Fly to Eastern Promises to The Elephant Man uh, to Spider, it, it's kind of like wow, this is the same guy. Okay, there's a lot in there. Um, I don't know. Maybe they're all, maybe he's tired. That's fair. And I mean, that's entirely fair. I, you know, he certainly doesn't owe us even another movie. And if he does give us another movie, he doesn't owe us a, uh, a body horror film or a sci-fi flick or whatever. Maybe, maybe he's just comfortable and retired now. And if so, uh, you know, we should just tip our hat to him for making the movies that he did because my God, what a, what a collection of movies he gave oh, us. Yeah. Maybe he can do a Scorsese in certain documentaries. <laughs> Maybe oh, there's like that. an obscure band he really likes or something. It would probably be about, he would make a documentary on motorcycles, I think. Oh, yeah. That'd be interesting. I would watch that. Oh. I would be there for it. <laughs> I would too. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I think that's just about our time. Ms. Crawford, thanks so much for your time and for choosing such a great movie to talk about. Before we wrap up, do you have any final parting thoughts on The Fly? Uh, it's it's absolutely wonderful. Uh, like I said, it, I think it serves a lot of masters while staying absolutely true to itself. Um, I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you have seen it. If you haven't, um, it's not overhyped. I promise you. I do not like to overhype movies to people. Please finally see it. And of course, if you've seen it and love it, revisit it. You can revisit this thing every week. You I kind of do sometimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for letting me be very inarticulate about this wonderful, wonderful piece of art. Hey, no, you were perfectly articulate. I, I apologize for being inarticulate myself from time to time, but I I lay that entirely to movie's feet. It's that damn good. It just – it uh, I, I, I tend to stutter and get flustered like a, a fan – when I talk about it. See, I can't even We all sum have up. a crush on this movie. It's I have okay. such a big crush on the fly. <laughs> always it's have very always lovable. <laughs> all right. And can I ask, what can fans keep an eye out for from you in the future? And where can they find you at online? Um, the best place is Twitter. Uh, I link everything there. So I'm scrawfish there. And um, yeah. Just follow me and you'll get way too much of me and find out everything I'm doing. Excellent. Alrighty, thanks again. And thanks to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, tell your friends about us. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much and have a great weekend. 
I've come here to say one magic word to you. Yeah? Cheeseburger.